Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. Want the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. So I want to welcome you back to our podcast here on the Determined Truth. Again, my co-host Vinny Angelo is not with us again tonight as we kind of continue and wrap up our study of the book of Ezekiel. And we spent our last time talking about Ezekiel 37 through 48. And what we're going to look at now is even more insight of the book of Ezekiel and how it's being fulfilled in the New Testament. So I'm going to go ahead. And if, uh, if you join us on our last podcast, you might know I have some uh, live uh, Zoom Bible study going on here. All right. So let me point out some things here now. Uh, Revelation 21, verse 3. What we're going to do is we're going to look at the book of Revelation, some, some key verses. And show us how it's referencing to what we just saw in the book of Ezekiel in our, in our last episode. Revelation 21, verse 3. And some of you want to read verses 3 and 7. Not all of it, but just not 3 through 7. But Revelation 21, 3, and then verse 7. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Blow the dwelling of God. Now the dwelling of God uh, is with men. And he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. That's a direct quote from Ezekiel 37. So Ezekiel 37 was the climax of this promise of restoration, these chapters, that then we pause with Gog and Magog. Oh, yeah, by the way, there's going to be an enemy. And then 40 through 48, this is what the end times temple is going to be. And remember, Ezekiel 37 is quoting Leviticus 26, which promises that God's going to restore his presence amongst his people for the sake of the nations, of course. And I'll be your God and you'll be my people and I will walk with you. So Ezekiel 37, if you want the verses, it's verses 24 through 27. So Revelation 21, 3 and 7 uh, are citing Ezekiel 37, 24 through 27. Revelation 21, 10, which I already mentioned, John's taken up uh, to a mountain where he sees a city. That's actually a temple that parallels Ezekiel 40 verses 1 and 2 of, of Ezekiel chapter 40. Uh, Revelation 21 verses 22 and 23. Remember in, in Ezekiel, the glory of God is going to be there and the glory of God is going to shine in, in, in that city. Revelation 21 verses 22 and 23. Somebody want to read those two verses? But I saw no temple in it for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Notice the nations walk by its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory into it. Let's go back to Ezekiel 47, which we didn't read this passage last time. And I'm also going to read from Ezekiel 48. Uh, in just a minute. All right, so here we go. Ezekiel 47, it says, verse 21, you, you shall divide this land among yourselves according to the tribes of Israel. And I'll come about that you shall divide it by lot, verse 22 now, uh, for an inheritance amongst yourselves and amongst also the aliens who stay in your midst, who bring forth sons in your midst, and they shall be to you as native born, uh, as native born among the sons of Israel. They shall be allotted an inheritance with you among the tribes of Israel. And it will come about that in that tribe, which says, which the alien stays, there you shall give him the inheritance, declares the Lord God. It's not just for the people of Israel. 
It's for the nations who also come in as well. And remember, of course, we'll, just, we'll look at this in our next yeah. couple of studies of the Gospel of Mark. This is what Jesus was so upset about. You are supposed to make Jerusalem a house of prayer for the nations, and you didn't do it. So the book of Revelation obviously is picking up this theme. Now let's also look at Revelation 19. And now in Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16, you have this description of the second coming of Jesus. So Jesus is coming back, and here's his return. And then it says, and you're going to see Gog and Magog here is what you're going to see. Verse 17. I saw in 19, Revelation 19, verse 17, I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds which fly in heaven, come assemble for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and slaves and small and great. And that's actually a quote from Ezekiel 39, verse four, right? And I'll go ahead and read Ezekiel 39, verse four. And it says, you shall fall on the mountains of Israel. This is to Gog. Ezekiel 39, verse 4, speaking to Gog. You shall fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops, and the peoples who are with you, and I shall give you as food to every kind of predatory bird and beast of the field. So again, Ezekiel 39, 30 and 39 is not describing some end times military that comes and invades Israel. It's God's going to feed the, the nations, the world who oppose God's people right, to the beasts of the field. Even better, however... Even better, however, is the Gospel of John. And I've already alluded to it earlier in the last podcast, but in those of you that were with us in the Bible study the, the, the week before, uh, when we were looking at the Gospel of John, is how Jesus in the Gospel of John picks up on this language. All right, so let's, let's turn there. Jesus in the Gospel of John. So here's what we have, and I alluded to this already, so I'll kind of go over this, this briefly. Uh, you have the baptismal waters of Jesus in John chapter 1. Of course, you have uh, creation language in John chapter 1, right? Uh, in the beginning uh, was the word. So, so we know that the Gospel of John's framing its, uh, its story in new creation language, or in creation language. We find out later it's new creation language. In John 2, his first miracle, right? What was his first miracle? Water into wine. Water into wine. But now <laughs> the water becomes wine. And of course, Jesus' answer is, I'm giving you new, a new covenant. And the new covenant is the covenant of my blood and the, the communion wine. So it's water and it's not water turned into blood because it's a wedding. They're not going to drink it, but it's water turned into wine. That's going to point towards the blood of Jesus. Now, chapter three, Nicodemus says, uh, you know, Hey, look, I know you're a teacher from God. And Jesus says to him in verse three, John three, verse three, I say to you, unless one is born again, he can enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is like, well, how can that happen? You know, you can't enter your mother's womb. And verse five, he says, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. There's our first explicit connection between water and the Holy Spirit. Mm. We know water is really important in these stories. And we see it, we see it coming out. And of course, chapter four is going to be the story of the woman at the well. And Jesus is going to say, you know, you should ask me and I would have given you living water. And the Samaritan woman says, like, you're Jewish and I'm not. How are you, why are you asking me for, me for a drink? Verse 10, Jesus says, you know, if you knew the gift of God and who was asking you for a drink, you would have asked him and he'd give you living water. She's like, sir, you have nothing to draw the water with. This well's like really deep. Uh, how are you going to get this living water? He's like, you're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? He's like, actually, I am. But he doesn't say it that way. <laughs> um, verse 13, he says, like, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But the water, whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst. 
the water I give him should become a well of water springing up into eternal life. And that's actually a quote from the book of Joel, where Joel prophesies this end times temple in Joel mm -hmm. chapter three. And he's, gonna, he's like, look, someday you're going to worship the father in verse 23. An hour is coming and now is when the true worship will worship the father in spirit and in truth. And there's our next connection. Oh, it's the Holy Spirit we might be referring to. Well, in case we were wondering, this is actually confirmed for us in John 7. Now, John 7, John 7, verse 37 says, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out saying, if any man's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Because he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Oh, Jesus doesn't have to worry about getting the water from anywhere because the water is going to actually come from within us. It says in John 13, now verse one, the, the, the Passover had come. All right, and it's the supper time. And so verse five, it says, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. And he came to Peter and Peter said, Lord, do you wash my feet? And, and what Peter's doing, by the way, is he's actually defending Jesus' honor. He's like, Jesus, this is dishonorable. You're making yourself lesser than me, but you're greater than I am. And Peter's the only one to speak up, by the way. And which, by the way, that's actually protocol because Peter's the leader of the gang. And if somebody else speaks up, they're speaking out of line because it's Peter's task to, to defend Jesus' honor, not anybody else's job. So Peter's defending Jesus' honor, like you're taking on the role of a slave. That's not going to work. You can't wash my feet. Uh, and, and Jesus says, verse eight, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part or and the word for part means no share. You don't participate in, in this ministry of mine. And Peter says, then Lord, not only my feet, my, my hands, my head also, my hands and my head also. He says in verse 10, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet and is completely clean and you are clean, yet not all of you. Now, what's interesting is that means Judas is still there. He hasn't left the house yet. He washed Judas also. Uh, also. Now, we skip on and we go to John chapter eight, uh, uh, 17, 18, and 19. We get the trials of Jesus. Jesus is being described as the true human. In John 19, verse 5, uh, Pilate says, behold the man. Which is like, behold the human. Is this guy the epitome of humanity or what? And and the author of Gospel of John, of, of course, is like, you don't know what you're saying, Pilate, do you? You mean behold the man, like, look at this despicable guy that I have pierced with a crown of thorns and I've got blooded and beaten. But Pilate, what you're actually saying is, this is the true man. Of course, that would be the sixth day of creation that uh, Adam was created on. And it says at the end of John chapter 19, 30, it says, uh, Jesus says, it is finished. And of course, on the sixth day, God finished his creation and then rested on the seventh day. Let's just suppose the gospel of John was framed with a creation narrative, alluding to the book of Genesis in the very first verse in the beginning. So we might not be surprised to see a creation or a six-day creation narrative happening. And if you read the first two chapters carefully, you'll notice references to the seventh day, to seven days. Because on the fourth day, he entered Cana. So John's clearly counting days in the first two chapters. And then says the next day, the next day, the next day. You got seven days in John chapters one and two. So, all right, we know that he's got this creation motif going on. So is it actually significant that Pilate says, behold the man in chapter 19, and that would be Jesus is the true human. Is it relevant that Jesus says it's finished, just like God said it was finished on the sixth day? 
Well, the next day, what's Jesus doing? He's resting. It's the seventh day. It's Sunday. He's in the tomb. Uh, it's, it's Saturday. Excuse me. The Sabbath day would be Saturday, right? It's Saturday. He's resting in the tomb. And then you go to John chapter 20, verse 1. And it says, now on the first day of the week, John clearly wants us to know that the resurrection happens on the first day of the week. And the reason why we know it's so significant for John is because he says it again in verse 19. When therefore it was evening on that day, the first day of the week. It's like, John, we already know what day it is. When an author repeats something like this, it's because they want you to remember and to be cue in that this is important. The first day of the week, of, of what week? Of the new creation week. Because Jesus is being, bringing the new creation. Now, how do we know that that's what's going on? When Jesus rises from the dead, uh, the women go run and tell the guys. The guys come running to the tomb and they don't see him. And then it says, verse 11, Mary was standing outside the tomb and she's weeping. All right, verse 12, two angels are sitting there in white. Like, where have you laid them? Like, they look, you know, woman, why are you weeping? Verse 13, because away my Lord, I don't know where they've laid them. When she said this, she turned around and behold, Jesus was standing there. But she didn't know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to him, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. What were Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? They were yeah. caretakers cultivating mm -hmm. and keeping the garden. They were gardeners. <clears throat> I suggest that's a clear allusion to Jesus as the new Adam. On the first day of the week, he's the new Adam. They think he's the gardener, right? There's no way that John would refer to that unless it had some significance. Otherwise, like, why, why even mention it? When it was the evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors were shut, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood beside them in their midst and said, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus therefore said to them, peace be with you as the father has sent me, I also send you. When he said this, he breathed on them. And the word for breathe is the same word in the Greek used in Ezekiel 37. Can, this, can these dry bones live? Oh, I don't know. Can they live or not? Yes, breathe on them and they'll come back to life, which is also the same word used in Genesis 2 in the Garden of Eden and the Greek version of the Garden of Eden. When God created Adam and he's a corpse, and he breathed on him and gave him the breath of life. What Jesus has just done is he's created, created the disciples as new creations. Which Paul picks up in 2 Corinthians 5. You are a new creation because the spirit of God dwells in you. When God's spirit comes into us, which happened at Pentecost and then when we become believers, we become this new creation. There's no question that John has this theme of new creation in mind. And of course, it's, it's Ezekiel language. Now we skipped over one thing. When Jesus is on the cross, and I alluded, this, I alluded to this to you previously, John chapter 19, 33, come in, they're going to they're gonna go see if everyone's, if they're dead or not, before they break, they're going to break their legs to kill him. Verse 33, uh, John 19, verse 33, come into Jesus. They saw that he was already dead and they didn't break his legs. He pierced his side with a spear and immediately came out blood and water. Well, it's in John 2 that Jesus says, turns water into wine, 
And then the next thing that happens in John 2 is he declares, hey, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. But the temple he was speaking of was his body. And then in John 3, hey, Nicodemus, you have to be born of water and the spirit. Right in the middle of all that, I'm the true temple. And what comes out of Ezekiel's temple from the throne? Water. Water that reaches the ankles, that reaches the knees, that reaches the loins. That's a river that can't be forded. Water that then goes out and gives life to everything. It's Jesus's body is the temple. And I think John's clearly saying the new temple of Ezekiel is being fulfilled in and through Jesus. Okay, now one more thing. First, or Second Corinthians chapter six. Because that's all really good, but I got to leave you with something because I filled your mind with a lot of things to think about and the process and how the fulfillment works and maybe answer some questions. Second Corinthians six. Paul is describing the church being the temple of God. And he says, you know, by the way, because of that, we can't fellowship or and the word fellowship probably means like have these binding relationships with unbelievers. So he says in verse 14, second Corinthians six, don't be bound with unbelievers. And then the word for occurs in the Greek and the word for means the reason why for what partnership of righteousness and lawlessness, what fellowship has light with darkness, what company has Christ with Belial, which might be another name for Satan? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For, and the word for means the reason why. We are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Now, I might... I might quiz you, but I, I'm not going to bother to do that, right? But we've heard that before, haven't we? We heard that mm -hmm. in Revelation 21, verses 3 and 7. The new Jerusalem is, I will dwell with you, and I will be among you, and I will walk with you, and I will be your God, and you'll be my people. But John was quoting Ezekiel 37. He wasn't quoting Paul. And Ezekiel 37, 24 through 37 is quoting Leviticus 26, 11 through 13. And what we're, in other words, here's the key. What I've been arguing is that, the, is that the promises of Ezekiel, the prophecies of Ezekiel, however you want to look at, is fulfilled in Jesus. It begins there. He's the true temple. The battle of Gog and Magog then begin then. It began with the time of Jesus. The book of Acts describes it. And it continues on that we are fighting not against flesh and blood, as Paul says, but against the spiritual force of darkness in the heavenly realms. That is the battle that the church has been battling since the time of Jesus. And that it climaxes in the new Jerusalem. But you can't leave out the fact that we ourselves also are presently the fulfillment of Ezekiel's temple because the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Remember, the water is actually the Holy Spirit. And if we're filled with the Holy Spirit, then Jesus' answer to the woman at the well was, you should have asked me and I'd give you living water and you'd never thirst again. Ah, he was speaking about the Spirit, wasn't he? And the Spirit hadn't yet been given. But he gave the Spirit in John 20. He breathed on them. And he gave them the Spirit. And now we become the temple presence of God. So in other words, let me kind of kind of climaxes in a number of ways. Number one, Paul's going to go on to say in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1, 
Therefore, be holy. Holiness is this biblical requirement of us because God dwells in us. It's not like in the Old Testament world, like, you know what, I got to kind of get myself holy right now because I'm going to go to the temple and do some sacrifices. No, we have to get ourselves holy always because God's presence is always with us. And we are the temple presence of God to the nations presently. Now, furthermore, those who say, oh, the temple of Ezekiel is going to be rebuilt in the last days. And here we, you know, the Jews have the, they have a red heifer somewhere. They're they're going to get it. I know they will. It'll it'll happen soon. And they're they're going to start this construction of the temple. And sorry for the Muslims because the Dome of the Rock's there, but that's okay because it's, it's all about Jesus coming. The problem with that is not only are you minimizing who Jesus is and undermining him, you're also undermining the present role of the church as the temple of God and our missional responsibility to take God's temple presence to the nations. You undermine the very purpose of us as the church, of us as the people of God. So now we go right back to Revelation 20. Satan, after the thousand years are over, he gathers the nations of the world and deceives them to make war against Christ and his people. And he surrounds the camp of the saints and the holy city. We are the camp of the saints and we are the holy city. So even though Ezekiel seemed like it was like, okay, what we're promising is a restoration of the Jewish people to the, to the land of Jerusalem. We realize in the new Testament, actually the Jewish people expand to include Jewish people, but anyone who repents, they're going to come from East and West and recline at the feast with me and at, at, at the table of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That's Matthew chapter eight. I think it's Matthew eight. And this fulfillment includes the nations, which we knew all along that God was always concerned about the nations. And I don't know anybody on this call right now that's actually Jewish. So we're all part of the nations being included in this covenant promise. And until it climaxes, A, Gog and Magog are waging war against us. And right now, our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan may very well be getting executed today. That's the war of Gog and Magog. That's the war of Armageddon, whatever you want to call it. It's all the same war. And we are to wage that war by lovingly sacrificing ourselves for the sake of the nations, just like Jesus did. And ultimately, whenever that happens, and maybe it's tomorrow, so we are at the end of the end, Jesus will return. Satan will be judged. The nations who follow him will be judged. The birds of the air will eat their flesh. And we'll be escorted into the new Jerusalem. And there'll be no more hunger, no more thirst, no more crying, no more pain. And death will be, will be done away. And we'll eat from the tree of life, which somehow is on both sides of the river. And we'll drink from the river of the water of life, which is the Holy Spirit, because we're never going to thirst again. Got it? That was easy. Amen. Yeah. And I, I, again, I encourage you, you know, we're recording this for the sake of the podcast. Kind of go back and listen a couple more times as well. Is there such a thing as a temple from which the Antichrist tries to rule the world. Yes, absolutely. They're absolutely very good. The question was, is there such a a temple where the Antichrist tries to rule the world? Exactly. What temple is it? I was hoping that you answered that. I already (laughs) did, but but you haven't figured it out yet. Because there's only one temple in the New... Well, you can say there's two if you want, but there's only one temple in the New Testament. Is it us? It's us. 
the bunch. So, yes. Is he yes. is he trying to corrupt us? Then? Yes. Think of it this way: the Antichrist and the devil who empowers him. Who is he trying to make war with? Us. Who's he trying to bring down? Us. Who's he trying to deceive? The nations? No, they're already deceived. So too were we deceived before Christ opened our eyes, right? It says he comes out of the temple of God. The phrase, uh, uh, the word temple of God is two words in Greek. When those words occur, I think it's 13 times in the New Testament. Every single time, and there's maybe one or two questionable passages, and I can send them for you right now. Every single time the phrase temple of God refers either to the body of Jesus, destroy the temple of God in three days, I'll raise it up. Or to the church, you are the temple of God. So if the Antichrist comes from the temple of God, he comes from us. And think about it. Antichrist means false Christ. I'm appearing as the true Christ. He's not a secular person. He's a religious person. Now, first, by the way, the word Antichrist is only found in 1st and 2nd John. 1st John chapter 2. So if you open, open your Bible, to 1st John chapter 2. This is the only time the word Antichrist appears in the Bible is in 1st and 2nd John. And look what John says about the Antichrist. 1st John chapter 2, verse 18. He says, children, uh, I'm looking at the New American Standard again. Children, it's the last hour. And as you heard that Antichrist is coming, and some of your Bibles might say, as you heard that the Antichrist is coming. Okay, that's fine. It could be an Antichrist, either way. As you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now, many Antichrists have arisen. From this, we know that it's the last hour. In other words, we know it's the last hour because there's already been a bunch of Antichrists. And look what he says in the next verse. They went out from us. The church. They went out from us, but they were not really of us because if they were of <clears throat> us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that they might be shown that they were not actually of us. And look at the next verse. You have an anointing from the Holy Spirit or from the Holy One. See how the Holy Spirit's tied into that? The point of that is the Antichrist is not some political leader that makes a peace treaty with the nation of Israel and deceives the world into worshiping him. What? The Antichrist, watch out because false prophets and false Christs will come among you as sheep in wolf's clothing, and you will know them by, your, by their fruit. And what do false prophets do in the, New, in the New Testament? I know I'm going long. I appreciate you guys hanging with me. What do false prophets do in the New Testament? Well, in the, in the New Testament, they attempt us either to avoid persecution by compromising the faith. Oh, I'm not really a Christian. Oh, you know, that, uh, that thing was for me, for, but not anymore. Or to compromise our faith so that we can gain prosperity and power and wealth. It, it, that's what false teachings do, do by, by nature. And that, that's, that's what Antichrist is, right? The beast of Revelation 13 then is not necessarily be equated with the Antichrist. The beast is just simply the empires of the world that are Gog and Magog, ultimately, that, that oppose God's people. So, right? I hope that helps. Does that help? It helped a lot because I was thinking that there is a, there's a false temple from which the Antichrist will try to rule. And you, 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 you made an excellent explanation. Thank you. Okay, good. Yeah. And that false temple looks like the real one to many Christians. Mm -hmm. And that's what we have to watch out for the deception from. Uh, any other questions or comments? Again, thank you very much for being with us in the Determined Truth Podcast. I hope you'll stay tuned for more episodes. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. 
You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.